Namaste and good evening to all of you. I'm happy to see you in this satsang. I want to make it a special occasion for a special opportunity. I know that uh, this was the time for Maha to give a satsang. We also decided to change it for the reason that we are having a series of three Sundays coming up where we are celebrating three types of Easter celebration, starting, therefore, very soon now. And um, it is very opportune for me to do this lecture also that other people can listen to it online and prepare. Every time when we do Christmas or Easter meditations, Sometimes people are shocked because they did not expect to see a connection between yoga and Christ. Some are shocked in a positive way, some are shocked in a negative way. And also, every time, therefore, it takes a while to reframe this knowledge for people, to make them understand some things. So I would prefer to have this lecture as a sort of a compulsory prerequisite for the Christmas and Easter meditations so that it can go in the right place, it can fall in the right place. The heart should be in the right place with this one. We sometimes encounter people who when they notice that there might be a connection between yoga practice and this ideal of Jesus, they are a little bit embarrassed because they come from a place where they think that Jesus is much bigger than yoga. They feel at some point that yoga is a threat to some religious fundamentalism which they have. And they think that as, yo as long as yoga stays focused on fitness and stretching and maybe a bit of healing and something like this, then yoga can be kept in a separate place. But as soon as yoga starts becoming a spiritual method, as it is very often mentioned in this new age subculture that we experience today, then they feel that Jesus is a wonderful ideal and there are Christian theologians who go into the <coughs> strange place <coughs> where they say that yoga might be the work of the devil. It's a deviation from your own religious fundamentalism. It's a, it ensnares you into some false uh, promises. You should stay with Jesus. So there are people who wouldn't like to bring Jesus and yoga together in this way. We also have people who come where when they encounter Jesus in connection with yoga, they are sometimes scared by Jesus because of coming from other religions. Like, of course, the Christian mystics claim that Jesus was the Messiah long awaited by the Jews for 500 years and that some Jews didn't recognize him and therefore they missed that train. That would make that the Jewish religion is invalid because the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah, but apparently he came 2,000 years ago, and therefore that train has gone long since from the station. 
And therefore, some people feel provoked about this. They say, you know, if I'm coming from an Orthodox Jewish environment, I cannot treat Jesus like the Son of God and this and that, because that would reflect bad on my religion. Some people come from the Islamic religion, and in the Islamic religion, they try to say that Jesus was not a divine incarnation. He was just another prophet. Yeah, there have been prophets like Abraham and Moses and Jesus, and there was one after Jesus, at least, and that was Muhammad. And therefore, Muhammad has terminated the message of Jesus and has brought the newer version, the updated version, another new covenant, which kind of annuls what Jesus said and brings it to the updated version, to the more modern version. And uh, very often, because of this, even the resurrection of Christ, which is celebrated on Easter, is a provocation because the common idea, and I'm going to come back to this one at some point in this lecture, is that Jesus was resurrected by God, by a divine decree, so as to demonstrate in a crushing way and shut the mouth of everybody who wants to comment against that, that Jesus was sanctioned by heaven. It was like God's sort of forceful intervention in manifestation. That's why, for example, there are Islamic sects which say that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He was just in a coma and he was resurrected after taking down from the cross by doctors. And then he went out of Israel. And some say that he's buried in Srinagar in Kashmir. And that he lived his life somewhere else because he did his thing. He was persecuted. He took enough. He had enough. Then he went and spent the rest of his life in peace because he had done his part. But that automatically takes exactly this very divine thing that apparently Jesus may have been confirmed by God. And in that case, he was not just a prophet, he was a visitor, he was a divine visitor on the surface of this earth. So there are people who encounter Jesus with a certain reservation because of pertaining to another religion. There are people who encounter Jesus with a lot of reservation simply because they are atheistic or agnostic or rationalists. There are various categories, various denominations, and they basically think that this Jesus thing is a fabrication of the church, it's a false myth, is a Mickey Mouse invention, that Jesus is the winter solstice, actually, or some bizarre things like that. And uh, therefore... Uh, they are embarrassed by it. You know, Jesus was some superstition in which your grandma believed, but today educated people, they look at the Da Vinci Code or they read, I don't know what uh, funny stuff, and then they say, no, no, Jesus didn't probably even exist. He was just a legend. And um, even if he was, the history is falsified totally. He was somebody else than what you think he was and did something totally else. And um, <clears throat> many of these people are interested in yoga because yoga has a down-to-earth, pragmatic, rational way of talking about spirituality. You know, like you do your headstand and your crown chakra activates and your crown chakra puts you in resonance with a maha sahasrara, with a cosmic crown chakra. And from there you get consciousness, awareness, enlightenment. <clears throat> 
and then you don't have to grovel at the feet of Jesus or to go into any religious superstition. So some people would accept the message in the language of yoga because it sounds more rational. And then as soon as you connect it with religion, they will say, oh, I didn't know that this was actually uh, in a certain way pretty much the same thing as that. And then it starts giving the creeps to some people. Therefore, there are various reasons for which when in a school like Agama, we show that we follow in the footsteps of the great yogis, and I'm going to give you some very eloquent quotes from great yogis on the face of this earth, great recognized yogis who had something to say about Jesus. So when we have that, then automatically people are a little bit cautious, like how is this connection and how far it goes and is Agama some Christian sect or a form of disguised Christianity? Or, or can you th- simply think about Jesus without actually being a Christian? And how far do these things go? That's why we need to clarify very much this issue. And that's why I have, for, before I tell you what we do on the next Sundays and what is really the point, so you understand why the school allots special time on the schedule of the school that we are coming and doing Christmas and Easter meditations and all sorts of other things are there. I'm going to perhaps mention some admin at some point. Uh, because of this, I would like to make you understand what great yogis saw in Jesus. Like why Jesus is not very popular in Buddhism, although many Buddhist authors may say, yeah, that was another enlightened being. But why Jesus is specially, has become specially popular in uh, yoga. Don't understand that this is necessarily in all forms of yoga. There is yoga which is religiously involved, like the Buddhist yoga of Tibet, and like the super Hinduistic yoga of India, and those people are not very happy about Jesus. There has been a Christian enlightened being in India, a Christian saint belonging to a Punjabi Sikh family who became a convert through enlightenment. He had the direct vision and experience of Jesus. His name is Sundar Singh. Of course, was because he lived many years ago, about a century ago. And Sundar Singh, he realized that the Christian message had not been heard too much in Ladakh and Tibet. And he was going in Tibet to preach Christianity. He was apprehended, arrested, beaten, tortured, partly maimed. And eventually one day he disappeared in Tibet, most probably assassinated and martyrized. Like the Tibetans, Lamas, Tibetan Buddhists, they are so, um, so universal. No, they are so civilized today when they come in North America and in Europe. And they are so kind and smiling, and they killed Sundar Singh because he was preaching Christianity in Tibet. There was no other. It was the Lamaistic police of of Tibet that beat, tortured, imprisoned, and did many, many other things to Sundar Singh simply because they said, we don't want any Christianity in Tibet. In India... There are today Hindu organizations like Shiv Sena, which is called Shiva's army, that's what it means. And Shiv Sena 
is completely rabid at Christian missionaries going through the Indian villages and trying to convert good Hindus to Christianity. And they are rabid even at Mother Teresa because they say Mother Teresa, through her kindliness, was actually winning people's hearts and was determining for a bowl of rice and for a hug to become Christian, maybe. So they, have, they write horrible things about Mother Teresa in some of their literature. You know? So don't think that uh, everywhere in Hinduism or Buddhism or something, Jesus is accepted or his message is enjoyed. What I'm talking about is I'm talking about the great yogis. The great yogis were no longer Hindu or Buddhist or anything. The great yogis were great spiritualists. They were people who had direct spiritual experiences. <clears throat> and these people wrote, witnessed some amazing things, which I'm going to share with you very soon. When I'm addressing you about this from the standpoint of Agama, you know that in Agama we try to explain things uh, not in absurd ways. Well, well, this is the will of God and you shouldn't think about why it happened and all that. We don't accept this kind of ridiculous, dogmatic, absurd explanations. The sex is bad because uh, it's ugly in the eyes of God. You know, if there is a problem with sex, we try to explain if there is a problem and what's the problem and how to deal with it. So our approach is always very down-to-earth and practical. And because of this, the same is in this story with Jesus. If we go metaphysically, as such as the metaphysical workshop which is unfolding these days, we always tell to people there is always one truth. Like the law of gravitation can be explained in ten different ways, but the tenets of gravitation are pretty much the same on a local scale. Modern physics can explain gravitation, electricity, and many other phenomena in a reasonable way which makes that we can tap them and we can use them. Well, in the same way, in spirituality, there must exist some sort of truth. Like you cannot say, uh, is there reincarnation or isn't there reincarnation? And then to answer a politically correct answer, maybe. Maybe, for some people, maybe. It's like, you know, do people have a liver in their abdominal cavity? You never say, maybe. People that are Hindu or Buddhist or Christian or Jewish, they all have a liver and it works pretty much just the same for everybody. Therefore, the laws of nature, even when they are laws of the invisible nature, they are always the same. And in metaphysics, in the metaphysical approach to yoga, we believe very clearly that there is a common reality. Either what Buddhists and Hindus and Jews and Christians tell you about death, afterlife, spirituality, kingdom of heaven, nirvana, it's all of it bullshit, it's all of it a fabrication, and religion is just selling dreams, religion is just selling illusions, and none of it is true. Or if we admit that the spiritual things may be true, then automatically we cannot say that Buddha was right and Jesus was wrong, or Jesus was right and Milarepa was wrong, and so on and so forth. That's why we have to admit that there exists a truth, that people like Krishna and Jesus and Buddha and the Lao Tzu and so on, they all of them tapped in some truth. 
They all of them opened their Ajna Chakra, they all of them opened their Crown Chakra, and they all of them had the direct experience of something which is transcendent, divine, perfect, absolute. I can give so many of the great epithets to this reality. And then people say, so why when they experienced all this, one says that this Crown Chakra experience is the Cosmic Father in Heaven, and another one says that it is Shunya, the Void, which also means Nirvana or extinction. Like, why such a different language? Why such a different outcome? Like, two great people, such as Jesus and Buddha, had the supreme experience, and one of them said it's a great void, and the other one of them said it's a loving Father that resides in heaven. It, it sounds pretty wild. Like, of course, we understand that philosophically there must be a unity. Because Buddha says this nirvana, this shunya, is something which is eternal, infinite, absolute, perfect, immutable. And Jesus says, my Father in heaven is eternal, perfect, immutable, endless, and all that, absolute in nature. So can there be two of those in the universe? The dharma, kaya, the Buddha nature of Buddha, and the Father of Jesus, and they are in competition They cannot be two of them, because if they would be, they would not be unique. They would not be the one. They would not be oneness. They would not be absolute. They would not be infinite, because they would overstep on each other's boundaries. <coughs> And therefore, we know automatically that if spirituality is real, I always give to the people this freedom, that maybe you are still influenced by some secular education, and you still believe that actually religion is bullshit and it's all a dream in a dream, and it's a sort of a soothing, soothsaying that people try to alleviate their fear of death or their fear of the unknown by inventing gods and goddesses and deities and divinities and nirvana and immortality and so on. You have, everybody has the freedom to doubt spirituality, and you are in a process of finding out. I suppose you are in a spiritual school because you are in a process of experimenting and finding out really what's happening. But again, I'm saying once you are, you are ready to accept that spirituality actually is real, then automatically one thing results immediately the infinite is the infinite, is the infinite. The absolute, is the absolute, is the absolute. There are not two of those. Things are very simple. At the top, there's always oneness. The top of, there's not a pyramid with two tops. A pyramid can only have a top. The universe, if it's a pyramid-like structure, it always ends in the same top. This being said, If there is a truth in all the traditions, we, try to, we have to try to see Jesus in this truth. And as soon as we look at Jesus as a comparative spirituality student, we see one thing. Jesus, both in the miraculous life which he led, and in the intensity of that life in just three years and a half, and in the divine message which he gave, and in the results which he had on hundreds and millions of people, then 
Jesus is definitely one of the top five. Like if, if spirituality is true, and if there lived five spiritual people on the face of this earth, then Jesus would not be absent from that list. It may be that some people will say, Muhammad is bigger than Jesus, Krishna is bigger than Jesus, Buddha is much more clear than Jesus, and I think he is more lucid, and this and that. Uh, arguments can be brought, but Jesus will definitely be on the top list. He will not be absent. He is way too prominent. He is way too visible. He is way too big. And he made way too much of an impression on the face of this earth, so you don't see him and you don't consider him somewhere. No. And that's why we have to understand, to see some elements from Jesus, to understand what is Jesus doing in Agama. Why in Agama we would celebrate this. Like We didn't take the effort, for example, to, to celebrate the birthday of Krishna. I made commentaries from Bhagavad Gita. Krishna is definitely one of the avatars and pillars of the Indian spirituality. If we teach yoga and according to Indian standards, maybe we should talk about Krishna's message and things and meditate at least on his birthday or something like this. It's not that I wouldn't do that. It's not that I'm not open to do that. That falls usually on the 14th of August. It's in the middle of the month of August. And uh, it's not that I wouldn't do that, but it has not been proposed. You know, like not many people are connected, feel connected so much with Krishna. <coughs> or even Buddha Jayanti. You know, there is a birthday of Buddha, which is right now in the spring. And there is an enlightenment day of Buddha, <coughs> the Vesak. And um, there, no, we don't really do special meditations for that. Again, because the souls of many people in the school... They don't feel really connected with that. And therefore, it's, a, it's an answer which comes from the collective soul of the school. But with Jesus, this does happen. So, what I'm trying to say, I'll first reveal to you some things as they appear seen from the standpoint of yoga. First, I would like to describe to you Jesus as seen from the standpoint of yoga. First thing which I wrote here on my list of mentioning to you is that definitely the Indian yogis, most of them, 99% of the great yogis, not only acknowledged and recognized Jesus as one of them, like this guy is part of our world, but they loved Jesus very much because, first of all, because of the path of the heart. India is very much into bhakti, and Indians, even when they do Buddhism, they eventually end in bhakti. In, when you do Buddhism in Thailand, if you go to Chom Tong and do a Buddhist meditation, and you suddenly you say, in the 14th day of this retreat, I suddenly felt a lot of love for some divine principles. I don't even dare to call it God, I, Buddha nature or something. And this love made me shed some tears of devotion. I really felt transported then your teacher is going to come back to you in a very dry and then we say, yeah, that's another samskara, it's another vortex in your mind. It's like love doesn't really exist and doesn't really matter. Love is just a movement, it's an emotion, it's a movement of your mind and it is not compatible with nirvana. Like in nirvana, there is not even love. Love is transcended 
And this love, you know, it's just a disturbing emotion eventually. So as long as you feel it in your meditation and in your life, know that you are not on the middle path of Buddha. On the middle path of Buddha, you don't hate and you don't love as well. So take such a doctrine and there, you know, I've seen a documentary where they did Goenka Vipassana, pure Buddhist meditation of breath awareness and body awareness and emotion awareness in Indian prisons with Indian convicts doing time in Indian prisons. And in the 11th day when they finished the retreat and they had to kind of congratulate and close down, they concluded with a great session of bhajans and kirtans. That's so Indian. He'll... Goenka does Vipassana retreats somewhere near Bangkok as well. They never end with bhajans and kirtans. Because it's only Hindus who have this hunger, other nations as well, but Hindus in particular because of yoga, that have this hunger for let's sing, let's cry, let's dance, let's swing, let's express our connection with God emotionally in some way. And uh, the Indian yogis having this path, like even when they do Kashmiri Shaivism, I hope some of you will get to learn from me here in Agama about Kashmiri Shaivism. And you'll see how amazing it is, how transcendent, what a, what a gem, you know, bigger than probably anything you've ever heard or known until now. And yet, even in Kashmiri Shaivism, Abhinava Gupta and the great masters, they condoned, they made place for bhakti. There is a booklet which we have here, which is my translation of some concepts from the Kashmirian Bhakti, that even in the highest Shaivistic Tantric meditations, still Bhakti is there because it's India. And in India you almost can't breathe without Bhakti. You can't do anything without Bhakti. And of course the Indian gurus, when they heard the message of Jesus, they said, this is pure Bhakti. This is like us. This is a man who relies on surrender, on humbleness, on love, on forgiveness, on all the values of the heart and of the crown. And therefore, <coughs> they immediately uh, endorsed, they said, yeah, this guy is the real deal. There have been Indian yogis who, they had some doubts about Buddha. I, I have had gurus who told me, in our opinion, Buddha is not as enlightened as Christ, Buddha has reached only Nirvikalpa Samadhi and not Bhava Samadhi because Buddha is talking about God as a void and he doesn't see the transcendental, holistic, overall image of God as transcendent and immanent at the same time. Again, I'm not saying that I'm endorsing this position concerning the realization of the Buddha, but I have seen Indian yogis who when they came to Buddha, they kind of wrinkled their nose, like, you know, he could have done better. But as about Jesus, they said nobody could have done better. Like this guy is the top of the top. Therefore, not only that uh, the Indian yogis had great things to say, and I'm going to tell you much more, but uh, many of the teachings of Jesus sound Indian. When you, many people say maybe Jesus was absent from Israel 
for 12, for 18 years, because we don't know anything about his life from the age of 12 until the age of 30, when he suddenly appears shining like a shooting star. And we don't know too much, and many people say maybe he was in Egypt, because when he was a kid, he was with his family seven years in Egypt, because he was chased to be killed, and they probably had family connections there, and he learned some of his stuff from the Egyptian priests from the hermeticists of the time, because there was a hermetic tradition happening in those centuries in Greece and uh, in Egypt, like Pythagoras, 300 years before Jesus, had studied with the hermetic priests of Egypt, and the hermetic tradition which generated Gnosticism, Kabbalah, much of the Sufi mysticism and others, it was really strong. But the funny thing is that the sayings of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus does not sound hermetic very much. A bit, but not very much. It does not sound Egyptian. It does not sound Phoenician or Babylonian. Or It actually sounds Buddhist, Hindu. There are many, many things on the morality and ethics of Jesus, such as his non-violence and other things, which are Jainistic, Buddhistic, Hinduistic. They definitely come from somewhere else when you make a comparative study. So that's why there are even people who say in those 18 years, Jesus must have spent a lot of those missing 18 years in India. That's where he learned. He had gurus, he had teachers, he had contact with these things. And then when he turned back at the age of 30, he was full on. Of course, he integrated it in his parents' religion, but it contained a lot of grafts from Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, and all those. So there is a connection then between the Indian environment in spirit. There is a connection. Many people say, no, Jesus was not in India, but because he was such an enlightened being with so, with basically everything paranormal available, like if he could raise the dead and walk on water, there was pretty much no limit to what this guy could do. And therefore, you can say that maybe he opened his Vishuddha chakra and he he looked at everything which existed on the face of the earth in Akasha, telepathically, clairvoyantly, like a remote viewing. And then he didn't really need to go to India to pick up Indian metaphysics or Indian occult sciences or spirituality or religion. Whichever the truth is, It's not possible to establish it scientifically today. Many people are trying, but there is no scientific breakthrough in this. As much as we say this, we see that the Indian yogis loved Jesus because they felt immediately the resonance, and many of the teachings sound very Hinduistic, Jainistic, definitely Indian. Many, many of the great yogis, such as Yogananda Paramahamsa, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. These are giants in the last two centuries in yoga. Swami Shivananda Sarasvati. Mahatma Gandhi himself, and who was less of a yogi and more of a karma yogi and a social activist, but still was very much connected with Indian spirituality and with yoga to a certain extent. These people and many others, they had glorious things to say about Jesus. They didn't say the same glorious things about others. But when it came to Jesus, they had incredible things to say. Just to give you a little perspective, I selected here a few paragraphs from just three big yogis. If these three have said these things, 
you can imagine others, because the quotes exist from others, but I would not want to make a reading evening right now. So it's just a few paragraphs. Here is, Here are a few quotes, first of all, from three quotes, short, relatively short, from Swami Shivananda, who was a Hindu doctor from Malaysia and uh, lived in Rishikesh and had absolutely no vested interest of any time, of any kind, in praising Jesus in particular. Among others, I have much longer quotes here, but I selected these particular paragraphs. This is what Shivananda has to say. Two thousand years ago, divinity incarnated upon this planet to show to all humanity the glorious path to everlasting life by actually living the divine life upon earth. The great Jesus embodied in himself the triple quality of satya or truthfulness, ahimsa or non-violence, and absolute brahmacharya or celibacy. In the, in, in the non-tantric spirituality, brahmacharya means celibacy. During the entire duration of his sublime life, Christ lived as the visible expression of the highest truth. He was a living witness to the supreme reality, essentially indwelling in man. Second paragraph, second quote. An almost supernal spotless purity rested like a divine mantle upon his sublime personality. His life was a wonderful combination of jnana, bhakti and karma based upon a supreme para-vairagya. Vairagya means detachment, like supreme detachment. An ideal integral development of the head, heart, and hand has rendered his life a model for mankind to emulate for all eternity. Christ was ever conscious of his inseparable identity with the Supreme Self. Yet deep devotion and love for the personal God constantly found expression in him in the form of prayers, praises, and glorification. And in his actual day-to-day life, he was the very personification of the spirit of Karma Yoga. His entire life was a continuous ministry unto the afflicted. His feet moved but to reach where aid was needed. If his hands moved, it was but to help the troubled and oppressed. His tongue spoke only to utter soft, honeyed word of compassion, consolation, inspiration, and enlightenment. With the very glances of his luminous yogic eyes, Jesus awakened, elevated, and transformed those whom he gazed upon. He felt, thought, talked, and acted for the good of others. Amidst this all, he dwelt in an unbroken awareness of the assertion, I and my Father are one. His life was that of a sage in Sahaja Samadhi. That's the name which Shivananda gives to Bhava Samadhi or Unmilana Samadhi, the ultimate Samadhi, the Samadhi with the eyes open. Last quote from Shivananda. Jesus Christ lived and symbolized divine consciousness. He was the very personification of divinity. He was born at a time where ignorance, superstition, greed, hatred and hypocrisy prevailed upon India as elsewhere. The rulers were arrogant and unrighteous. The people were avaricious, indolent and heedless. Purity was forgotten. Morality was neglected. 
they were more intent upon worshipping Mammon than adoring God. There was no idealism. In the midst of these conditions, Christ was born and he worked a transformation in the lives of people, though not quite successfully in his lifetime, but through the following centuries by the means of his teachings. He gave a new spiritual turn to the lives of his fellow men. Thus, a new era dawned upon this world and the teachings of Jesus spread far and wide. <clears throat> Paramahamsa Yogananda, another yogi, another environment, lived in the West for many years. He says, it was from my guru, Swami Sri Yukteswar, in his ashram in India, that I learned about Christ and the real meaning of his teaching. And I never forgot it. I have been able to win in life because I applied those timeless principles. The, on, the authenticity of the life of Christ, the very life of Christ, either as exact facts or the life itself, the existence, has been questioned by many agnostics. Like, it's not a new thing. It was happening in the 1930s and 20s when Yogananda was writing these things. Some have propounded the theory that Jesus was legendary, his life a mere fictitious drama. I, says Yogananda, I know that Christ is real, for I have seen him many times. He speaks about a story. He was doing something. I, I clip a few lines because I don't want to read too much. And I go directly in the midst of this story. Because I felt that the activities of my yoga administration had taken me away from God, I prayed, Lord, I will go away. I will not remain in America and do your work unless I know you are with me. Then a voice came through the ether. Yogananda was a man with many visions. In this way, not everybody in yoga hears voices or sees things. It's not a must. Came through the ether like a light beam, of, like a beam of light. Quote, what do you want? You cannot go. Unquote. Many times in my life, God has thus prevented me from carrying out my desire to run away from my duties to this cause, to be only with him. I replied to the divine voice, quote, let me see on a sea of gold, Krishna and Jesus and their disciples. Even as I made this inward request, I saw those divine ones coming towards me. It is a hallucination, I thought. See, if it would have stopped here, you would have had one of these crazy sectarian people that has crazy hallucinations, which are all self-generated. But look how skeptical of himself, how much double-check Yogananda gives as a real Capricorn, as a man with a university degree, like a person that really wants to not just live in a world of delusion. He says, I thought, it is a hallucination, I thought. If the person meditating with me in the room sees this also, then I shall believe. Instantly, my companion exclaimed aloud, Oh, I see Christ and Krishna. Then I rationalized, this is telepathy. This is just thought transference. I was doubting and praying to God to help my unbelief when the voice said, when I leave, the room will become filled with the fragrance of the lotus and whoever comes shall notice it. As the vision vanished, the whole room became permeated with a marvelous lotus essence. Others entering the room even hours later noted the aroma. I could doubt no longer. If you want, like a person, trying to make sense of their mystical experiences, not being a credulous git 
who is ready to swallow any ridiculous thing, but really rationalizing. Says Yogananda in a yogic way as well, that's the last two paragraphs, small paragraphs. First, Christ is right here. He can be seen by you if you look within your forehead at the point between the eyebrows, the center of Christ consciousness, the seat of the single or spiritual eye. If you want to see Christ, he means Ajna Chakra. If you want to see Christ, concentrate at this point of spiritual vision. Look through the spiritual eye. If you want to receive his universal intelligence, you have to feel his consciousness in the spiritual eye. After death, Jesus resurrected his body and allowed hundreds of people to see him. To the doubting Thomas, he said, it is I, touch me. Why why did he materialize his body? The others might behold him after, that others may behold him after resurrection and know that all who are in tune can behold him and know that he is. Saint Francis, that Saint Francis of Assisi, pay attention to this statement, He said, I meet Christ every night in flesh and blood. Lie? A liar? A big liar? Or what? You too can behold him if you can put yourself in tune, just as I have seen him many times. There is a way to invite Christ. He doesn't want praise, nor can he be bribed by wealth, by any sermon, or by mock devotion. He will be drawn only to the altar of your love. If there is sufficient love and devotion in your heart, then, and only then, will he come to you. He may actually materialize in person. And a little account of Ramakrishna, another huge mystic, who again had no interest ever in his life for turning administratively, logistically, in a Christian. Shambhu may have been the trigger for the master's liaison with Christianity. Liberal in his religious outlook, Shambhu used to read from the Bible to Sri Ramakrishna in his parlor. The master became fascinated with the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. The, this system invoked in him a desire to realize God through the Christian path. One day... He was sitting in the parlor of another devotee, Jadu Malik, also at Dakshineshwar, when his eyes became fixed, like in a trataka, on a painting of Virgin Mary and child Jesus. Watching it intently, he became gradually overwhelmed with divine emotion. Just doing trataka on an icon, if you want about how to connect. Simple, relatively. The figures in the picture became lifelike, and the rays of light emanating from them entered his soul. Christ possessed his soul, and he was in an ecstatic mood. For three days he did not enter the Kali temple. On the next day, as he was taking a stroll, he saw a tall, foreign-looking man with a beautiful face and brilliant eyes walking towards him. As he wondered who it could be, a voice from within told him, This is Jesus Christ, the great yogi, the loving son of God. Jesus embraced Sri Ramakrishna and merged within his body. Thus, did Sri Ramakrishna realize his identity with Jesus Christ as he had already attained it with Mother Kali, Rama, Krishna and Brahman and Muhammad the Prophet. 
Actually, in the end of his life, it is mentioned by his disciple Swami Saradananda in the book about the life of Ramakrishna, that Ramakrishna even made the flabbergasting statement that out of all the divine visions, which are many, which he had during his life, the most spiritual, the most, the greatest of them was the vision of Jesus. That statement made by somebody like Ramakrishna, who was such an authentic spiritualist, says everything. Remember, therefore, that Jesus is an ideal model for any yogi. Like, of course, if you are lukewarm and you just want to do a little bit of yoga so you can do your bungee jumping better or, you know, focus in your job better, which is not bad. Like, I'm happy if you use yoga for anything which gives you progress and good things in life. But if you are beyond that, if you are not into that, then, of course, you want to see, you know, I want to do this yoga to the hilt. I would like to do yoga to the maximum. What's the maximum? What would a person do if they could act to the maximum? There you have the model. Like nobody did as much as Jesus. Jesus did it to the maximum. That's why Shivananda and others, they felt, what would I do if I would be 24-7 connected to the divinity, all the time in a hair-raising inspiration, all the time hooked on, and all the time with all the cities and everything open 100%, I would be walking the face of the earth and it's like divinity would be present right there. Just say the word and it happens. Like this Roman centurion who says, I know you are a busy man. You don't even need to come and lay your hands on my servant. Just say the word. I know you can. Like everything is possible for you. And Jesus was enchanted. He said, listen to this man. I have not seen such faith even among my Jewish people around here. Like this man believed it so much that he said, all it takes is just an intent from you because you are the kind of guy that can move the mountains, that can do whatever. Just, Just move a finger and it will happen. Bat an eyelid and it will happen. It's all that it takes. So that's one of the things which is difficult to understand because many of you are sometimes figuring that when people reach spiritual realization, like Buddha, and again, I wouldn't want to go into a controversy about this thing with Buddha, you can take anybody else, Milarepa or some other great enlightened being, they go around being all the time in 100,000 volts with Kundalini up in Sahasrara, full on, 24-7, and they go on and they are endowed with paranormal abilities all the time and all that. That's not the case. That's just wishful thinking, And it's a legend. I can tell you from experience, and experience which I have seen confirmed with many teachers and yogis, that what is happening is that the person experiences peak experiences, and then there are also moments of relaxing, uh, moments when sometimes you go in a state of samadhi for three hours or for even more hours, like five hours, six hours, eight hours, and afterwards you feel like you have to eat food for two days to recover. It's like there has been such an intense burning inside you. Like inside you, you've been burning like a candle. You've been like exhausting some resources of the body to be able to stay high at that level. This thing is noticed even about much lesser spiritual 
experiments. Like there are people who are practicing lucid dreaming and astral projection. And in the moment when they succeed to do astral projection, they do it for 10-15 minutes and suddenly they feel, I have no more energy. I don't have enough energy to sustain this process. And it's like now it's over. No, like you you are burning something in just having a higher state of consciousness. You are consuming the sugar from your cells, something which is not identified yet because there has not been scientific research in this way on the body, on the living body of Shivananda or Ramakrishna or Yogananda. And therefore, of course, scientifically, there is a black hole there. We don't know a lot of things. But what I'm trying to say is, this: it's very, very difficult that you have all the time, non-stop this. When you read the life of Jesus, you see exactly this. Like we don't know all the details of what was happening when he was defecating or when he was taking breakfast or other things, you know, like we're reducing things to the dreary uh, details of life. But basically we are being told the story that Jesus was walking wired up all the time. Every time when somebody came, appeared, there was something Jesus said, look, this is so, Pam, you are forgiven. And like he always went on. They never said in some place, uh, that night Jesus was tired and he did not make bread and fish for 5,000 people. He simply said, guys, wait until tomorrow morning. I need to sleep a little bit to build up. You never caught him like this. In the case of Buddha, you can see it. And again, I'm not trying to put Buddha down in any way. I'm, I'm just showing to you as title of comparison that even highly enlightened beings they cannot carry it 24-7. They must have some moments where they are breathing, where they are rebuilding their energy. But with Jesus, we have never seen. It's true, Jesus didn't go for 40 years like Buddha. He went only for three years and a half, as far as we know. But in those three years and a half, nobody who wrote about this life ever mentioned a single moment of low, a single moment of rest, A single moment of like, you know, guys, give me a break. It's Sunday and I need a break. You know, it's like I can teach you six days per week, but Sunday I need a holiday or something. No, never, never. Either it was about raising people from the dead or healing lepers and blind or giving high metaphysical examples or, you know, going in the temple and blaming people and saying, no, you turn this into a house of thieves and so on, to a den of thieves. Every time Jesus was relentless, 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 non-stop. With Buddha, Buddha goes, a woman comes from a village and he says, Buddha, I heard you are an enlightened being. This is my child. Bring my child is dead. My baby is dead. Bring him back to life. There has never been a thing like this. Like Jesus was asked by five people to revive their dead relatives or children, and Jesus chose three of them. And two of them told them, you are stupid to ask for that, or it's not the right astrological moment, or uh, I'm too tired, ask me tomorrow. Never. Jesus is supposed to have performed three resurrections. Three out of three. He's never said that one didn't quite work, or he was not in the mood. They never existed. But Buddha was not in the mood. Either he couldn't do it, or if he could do it, he was not willing to do it. 
And then he gives a philosophical lesson to that woman. He says, go into the village and bring me salt from a house where nobody has died yet. There has to be a clean house, unpolluted by death. But of course, in a village, everybody has had a grandfather and a grandmother and a great-grandfather and somebody who died. Especially in the old days where people were having 10, 15 children and families were numerous and death was coming pretty quickly. It is highly, highly improbable that somebody had built a house just a month ago and in that house nobody had died yet. So the woman comes desolate after two hours of searching and she says, Master, there is not such a house in the village. And which Buddha starts lecturing her. He says, see... Death is striking everywhere. Death is the inevitable end of life. We cannot stop life. We cannot stop death. Everybody who is born is supposed to die. The only difference is that some people are dying earlier and some people are dying later. But there is no... So Buddha says, why are you asking me to reverse the process of death when it actually belongs to Mother Nature? It's the Dharma. That's the way things are. No, he would have said this is the will of God, but he didn't speak about God in this way. And therefore, Buddha, basically, he doesn't do it. He heals the mother's agony by giving her some philosophy. But he doesn't do the actual act of revival, of resurrection. The yogis who know, who who can feel by empathy, by samyama, they know this, that when you look at Jesus... We don't know about the other 30 years, but about his public ministry, once he did the 40-day fast in Jericho, and then he appeared to the world, he introduced himself to John the Baptist and everything that followed, he got baptized and all that, Jesus was relentless. We don't even know if he slept, how much he slept, if he was sleeping in a sitting position, instead of, we suppose that historians would have said something, Like, also, we have to tell you another great thing about this guy. He was never lying down, you know. He was never sleeping. (coughs) Maybe he was. (coughs) So the fact was, there was nothing special to be mentioned there. So what I'm trying to say is, yogis who know how the spiritual life goes, what's happening in real life, they've seen this, and they've said this is an ideal no, like we would all like to develop 24-7 awareness, 24-7 divine connection, and to have all the cities available. So as showing the will of God, we should just give a clear, shocking, amazing message that will shatter their hearts. I myself would love to be able to do what Jesus did, both in terms of eloquence, both in terms of looking in your eyes and going directly to your heart and to your soul and awakening you, maybe walking on water and raising some dead so that you will believe this Swami Vivekananda, he is not talking bullshit. There is something there. Everybody wants to reach their maximum eloquence, their maximum impact, because if I don't have the maximum impact, then why am I doing this? I'm wasting my time and you could have spent the evening doing something else. That's why, remember the yogis, seriously, any, any yogi who has common sense would say, if I could do what Jesus did, I would do it. 
No, I would want to shake the world. The world is in agony. The world is in Kali Yuga. The world is in darkness. You know, if I could just go and shake the world, why shouldn't I do it? No? I want, I have a number of years left to live on the face of this earth. And during this number of years, I want to reach maximum efficiency. I don't want to dilly-dally. If I'm to dilly-dally, you know, better I should, no, then why should I stay in a physical body and just scratch my head all day long, you know, when that is a limitation and I could as well get out of my body and live without that limitation since I have discovered what is beyond the life and death itself. That is why, remember again and again that the yogis not only loved Jesus, but they said, we'd all like to be like this guy. If we could just do what this guy did, we'd feel that we did our karma yoga. We, we fulfilled our dharma. That's why both Shivananda and Yogananda, they call Jesus a divine model. Like Jesus is to be modeled. Jesus is to be copied. Come as close as possible to what Jesus did. That's divine life. No, Swami Shivananda has this concept of live a divine life. And then he said in what I read to you, Jesus manifests this divine life 24-7 in a body on the face of this earth. Like that's divine life. No? It's, many have tried. Sri Aurobindo said, I'm going to bring the cosmic consciousness in my body. I'm going to create a community and a city where God is present and all that. Did it happen? Not really much. Not really much. A little, bits and pieces. But what Sri Aurobindo conceived about Auroville is much, 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 much more, thousands of times more than what is happening today historically and logistically. That's why there's many people who say, but maybe it will come in another 500 years. Maybe. But that's just a belief. It's just wishful thinking. Maybe. Where well, I'm open to see it. But therefore, of what we know with common sense until now, therefore remember that Jesus is the ideal model. To understand more clearly why is Jesus so special, I have to mention, and some of you may have heard that and some of you don't know it, that the Hindus have come up with the very concept of avatara. They basically said, not all the people are people. 99.9999999999% of the people are people. And then there is that one in a quadrillion who is an avatar. And the word avatara, avatarana, comes in, in Hindi, in Sanskrit actually, it means descent. Descent of something, that something descends. And that descent I have to explain this every time when there is Christmas and Easter, and I hope that now being recorded, we can have it and everybody can learn this in their due time. A descent means the Hindus have said there is evolution on this planet. There are higher spirits, lower spirits. Some of the people who are incarnated are ex-chimpanzees, like just a lifetime or two or three ago, they were incarnated as animals. So they are just very primitive human beings. Some people are moderately evolved, like they are middle of the way. 
Some people are bodhisattvas. They are 90% Buddhas. They have got a few years or a few lifetimes until they will turn into Buddhas. So these people are, are almost like demigods or like almost like angels or something. And then there, there exist great spirits, like there exist incarnated spirits, which when they come to the earth, they have been enlightened already in a previous life. And now because they were children, they forgot it for 10, 12, 15, 20 years. And then they remember it. For example, Yogananda Paramahamsa started having visions with yogis from the Himalayas at the age of six, seven. How do you have a child living in a normal Hindu family, starting seeing yogis in the lotus pose and wanting to go to the caves of the Himalayas to join them? This is a person who did yoga in a previous life and either reached enlightenment or reached 90% close to enlightenment, which the Mahayana Buddhism calls the Bodhisattvas, Buddhas to be, like near Buddhas, almost Buddhas, such a person is, that's where such a person is coming. And that's why when Paramhamsa Yogananda comes to the ashram of Sri Yukteswar, he beats all the others at yoga, because he, is, he looks like all the others. And people can say, this guy came in the school only six months ago. And then in two years, he already makes so much progress that there is no other yogi in the school as advanced as that. Why? Because such a spirit is just remembering. Such a spirit has already crossed the path 90%. And when they start doing yoga, it just comes to them at a very accelerated pace. And they realize, they, have, they get back to where they reached and then they know that they have 10% more to go. Those 10% which you didn't manage to do in your previous life, now you can catch up with them in two years, and then you can do them in this life after two years. So everybody knows that there are high spirits like this. When, when Ramakrishna Paramahamsa met his disciple Vivekananda, Vivekananda was not really the most devoted, the most affectionate, the most... Actually, he was a rationalist. And he had many funny things in his life until he died. He died at a pretty young age. But he had many funny things. Many people would say, I would have expected somebody more heartful. Somebody... But Ramakrishna, when he saw him, he reacted immediately. Ramakrishna said, this man, although now he is a rationalist and he plays stupid games... He is actually the incarnation of one of the seven rishis of the Vedic times. This man is an ex-rishi. And therefore he basically is enlightened. But because he got a new body and a new brain, that body and brain has impurities. He never did yoga. And because of this his subconscious mind doesn't manage to break through. And he doesn't remember. But he is strangely attracted to me, Ramakrishna, because his subconscious mind says, yes, 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 go, 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 that guy will open the door for you. Vivekananda was so spooked by Ramakrishna that at the critical moment in the end, he even confronted him and he said, I actually think that you suffer from mental disease. I think you are hysterical and crazy. This is not the truth. This is not it. He confronted him directly because Ramakrishna was singing and going ecstasy and doing things. And Vivekananda said, this sucks so much. It's so ridiculous. It's so pathetic. 
and then the ball was in the court of Ramakrishna, who reacted in a very spectacular way. But Ramakrishna was doing this because he said, this man is an enlightened being who doesn't need to do yoga for reaching nirvana. This man is an enlightened yogi already, and he's just forgetting it for the time being, because he got an impure body. And as soon as I'm going to purify his nadis, he's going to shine like the sun. And then Ramakrishna did an unthinkable thing, which is not very often done in spirituality. He just touched him and put him in samadhi. He didn't even touch him with his hand. He touched him with his foot. He just stretched his foot and touched him, because they were sitting on the floor. He just stretched one of his feet and touched him on the thigh. And then Vivekananda, he went into Samadhi. And he stayed in Samadhi for three days. He was stoned out of his senses for three days. Ramakrishna did this because he said it's not a problem to give this guy the enlightenment. Because he has it already. He just, it's a small thing for him. Because he just needs to remember it. Other people who are with Ramakrishna, they were not that lucky. Because Ramakrishna didn't see them as enlightened spirits. And they, they, are, they can be masters thus who come from one or two or three or five or ten previous lives which are enlightened. They are sometimes masters from Shambhala who simply say now they need somebody there. I will take a new body and go and incarnate on the planet earth because it's need. It's very needed. Now they are in dire straits. Now they are in terrible trouble, and I'll go there. And that's why what I'm trying to say, the Hindu spirituality always knew that not all people are the same. You cannot compare a chimpanzee-like human being who is just living like an animal in his own snot and just plays with a stick all day long, being very low IQ, very low heart, very low everything, being just a little bit more than an animal. You cannot compare that with Swami Vivekananda, the great of India. Because these are, they look the same. They are just two fellows in a flesh and blood body. But what the spirit that inhabits that body is as different as heaven and earth. In this respect, the Hindu mystics have said there is another category, even more rare. That category which is more rare is that sometimes divine forms of consciousness because the history of the earth must be altered, they take a birth miraculously, they do something, and they get born on the planet earth. Sometimes apparently normal, from a mother and a father and all that, because they don't need to create too many waves, and sometimes the birth may be accompanied by some weirder circumstances, like in the case of Jesus, as you know. And thus... This category of people, which are approximately one such person in a thousand years of human history or less, such people are called avatars, descents of the divine. In India, this is known literally. For example, they say that Vishnu, which is an aspect of God, God can be seen as Brahma, as Vishnu or as Shiva, as fulfilling three different cosmic aspects. That aspect of God, which is called Vishnu, and which means basically the preserver of the universe, Vishnu has promised, has made a vow, that during this cosmic cycle, and it's not known exactly to which cosmic cycle do the Hindus refer, normally a cosmic cycle is of about 26,000 years, 
in this cosmic cycle or maybe in the bigger one which is 14 such cycles and that means 342 hundreds of thousands of years the Hindu metaphysics is pretty inaccurate when it comes to engineering numbers and things like that because it's a devotional tradition not a mathematical engineering tradition in this cosmic cycle basically Vishnu promised to incarnate 10 times and he already has nine times. So there is one to go, which will happen in the end of the Kali Yuga. So when you see that one coming, Kali Yuga is about to be finished. That last avatar of Vishnu is called Kalki Avatara, and it is exactly like the second coming of Christ, and it is exactly like Imam Mahdi of the Muslims, and it is exactly like... Um, Buddha Maitreya of the Buddhists. It's the spiritual personality. I'm not saying all those four are the same, but they may very well be one and the same person designated by four names, by four traditions, in which will designate the end of Kali Yuga. Before Krishna, for, I'm sorry, Vishnu was incarnated, for example, in his seventh incarnation as Rama. Rama, Rama and Sita. Rama from Ramayana, the great Rama, which is an epic which exists even in the Thai folklore as a root of many, many civilizations from Asia. And then the same Vishnu, this Rama should have been incarnated by the most conservative opinion of some historians about six, seven thousands of years ago, ago from today. And then about 4,500 years ago, which means 15 centuries later, Vishnu came back in a totally different body, in a totally different circumstance. And only somebody that had a channel with God and a total clairvoyance could actually see that this guy is Vishnu again. For everybody else, it was like... And that number eight coming of Vishnu was called Krishna, the famous Krishna, the greatest avatar of Indian spirituality, who is praised in the Mahabharata and in so many other forms of Hindu mysticism until today, Bhagavad Gita being just an illustration of that. Many people say, when did Vishnu come the ninth time, if there is a tenth time? And here the opinions are split, because it's Kali Yuga, people are getting more blind, and the people don't know where it is. And some people say the ninth incarnation of Vishnu was Buddha himself, which doesn't really hold, <clears throat> but people's devotion goes there. Some people say that the ninth incarnation of Vishnu was Jesus himself, but because it happened in the West, people didn't have any concept about that. And some people say that the ninth incarnation of Vishnu was Ramakrishna himself, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa in the 19th century, because Ramakrishna who can be accused of being a weirdo for people who don't appreciate him. They will probably judge him like a freak or a weirdo. But Ramakrishna, who definitely was not a liar, like nobody caught him with lies, he was a very candid, pure soul. Ramakrishna, when he was lying, preparing for death, he pointed at his own, thing, at his own chest, at his own body, and he said, in this body... Rama and Krishna are present and united beyond any duality. And he mentioned specifically, he said, I don't say this in the Vedantic meaning. 
because in the Vedantic meaning, everybody is Brahman, Tattvamasi, that you are, you are that. You are Vishnu, and I am Vishnu, and everybody is Vishnu. And that's true in a certain way. It is a Vedantic statement, and it has to be interpreted in a Vedantic statement. In a Kashmiri Shaivistic understanding, I am Shiva, you are Shiva. And that's true. But Ramakrishna said, in this body, Rama and Krishna are one. And, and that I'm not saying that Vedantically. Like I'm saying that actually. So it seems that Ramakrishna himself has declared <coughs> that he was uh, the ninth incarnation of Vishnu. I'm telling you all these things to see that the concept is very alive in India. And these avatars are beings which surpass enlightenment. They are not a rishi, one of the seven rishis. They don't come from Shambhala. They are something cosmic. They are coming from much above anything connected to this planet. <clears throat> the avatars have no karma. You cannot say it was the karma of Jesus to get crucified. I heard some people, even some Indian gurus, saying, well, it was his karma. Like, are you nuts? You know, an avatar doesn't have a karma. Krishna, Rama, they don't have a karma. So, avatars don't have karma or destiny. They have 100% free will. They do what they do because they are the divine consciousness. <coughs> they don't remember it necessarily. <coughs> <clears throat> they don't remember it necessarily when they are five years old. Ramakrishna did not remember when he was five years old. At the age of six, he looked up and saw some amazing landscape on the sky, and he went into an ecstatic, into an aesthetic, ecstatic form of ecstasy, because even as a child at six, he was hypersensitive, hyper-aware. <laughs> And then his father died a year later and he had another shock. And then he started studying yoga and it actually took him about another 10 years or more, more than that, obviously, 12 years of practice of Kali before he actually reached a considerable state of Samadhi. So although he, he was enlightened, that enlightenment was not present consciously in his brain. <clears throat> it was potentially there, but the door had to be open. He had to realize it. So don't think that if somebody is an avatara or comes from Shambhala, <coughs> they will automatically be enlightened at the age of three. Did it happen? Does it sometimes happen? Yes. It happened, for example, to Jiddu Krishnamurti, who was having states of samadhi at the age of six. And the Theosophical Society spotted him. Somebody told them there is a weird child in a village or in a city in India and apparently that kid is reaching states of ecstasy just like this without even knowing why or what is happening to him. And the Theosophical Society was very keen, very interested to adopt this young child. It apparently happened to Maanandamai. Maanandamai, a great guru who lived in Haridwar and other places of India, but her main ashram is in Haridwar, Mananda Mai declared that she remembered having states of cosmic consciousness when she was a girl of two years old. And therefore, for some people, if the body is pure and some conditions are fulfilled, you may get lucky and you don't even need to do yoga. But actually, Mananda Mai 
when she was 20 years old, she did lots of yoga because she was not satisfied with what was shining through. She wanted to really work on this and open it. So the avatars, they don't have karma, they don't have destiny, they, can, they don't have any becoming, like they don't need to reach nirvana because they are nirvana itself. They don't need to reach God because they are a part of God already. And therefore, they don't have any interest in evolution, development, finality, graduation, nirvikalpa samadhi, bhava samadhi, or anything. And they can sometimes bend the moral rules. Krishna, Jesus, and many others like them, they did pretty savage, wild things sometimes, because they were not bound. They were not like, oh, if you do this, you will never see God. I am God, you know, it's like don't come to me with stupid rules because the stupid rules may be made for people that are polishing their diamond, but my diamond is perfect already. There's no need to polish it anymore. Just need to wipe the dust of it a little bit and that's it. Generally, avatars are the ones who create new religions. These are the great religion makers. Krishna is the root of Hinduism. Jesus is the root of Christianity. And of course, we can speak that Abhinava Gupta was supposedly an avatar of Shiva, a minor avatar of Shiva, but still, that Ramakrishna may have been the ninth avatar of Vishnu. But really, when you look at all the history, Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna, Abhinava Gupta, you see one simple thing. Of all these avatars, Jesus simply looks, shines the most. He's the greatest. And that's why it was said very clearly that Jesus is not a fellow like you and me. That's why even Shivananda, who understands this very well, he says divinity, divinity, the divine, incarnated on earth 2,000 years ago. You are going to say, who, Vishnu? No, not even Vishnu. Divinity under the form of the one heavenly father. Not Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva. You go even more to the top of the pyramid, to the one. And that one accepted as a sort of a cosmic sacrifice to be present on planet Earth because his presence was going to have a magic effect, an effect of changing a lot of things. Many people say, what? There was still domestic violence and cancer and wars, and what did Jesus really change? Nothing. Humanity is a shithole and it remained a shithole after Jesus as well. That's because you are not looking at the Spirit. If you look in the Spirit you are going to see this incredible change. There are some incredible changes which are brought by Jesus. Here is a simple one. Jesus is the first one in history who really said it and showed it that human beings can take over the karma of another person. Buddha, in the early Buddhism, not in the Mahayana Buddhism which appeared in the 5th century, 6th century and was influenced by Christianity, at least telepathically, at least mentally, to the collective subconscious mind. But in the early Buddhism, there's absolutely no concept. Everybody is with their karma. Everybody has to deal with their karma. I remember talking to <clears throat> one of my teachers who was quite intolerant in the matter of Jesus. And he said, oh yeah, Jesus died like a thief on a cross. That's not very honorable for a yogi. And... Uh, even Ramakrishna died of a cancer in his throat. And I was surprised because most great yogis understand this. You know, I, I could see that this man was a teacher, but he was not a very enlightened teacher. He was quite egocentric and powerful. 
he knew a lot of things, and I must admit I've learned some yoga techniques from that one as well, such as the Oli Mudras and a few other things. But he was not really spiritually, he was not having clarity. And I said, how can you say such a thing when everybody knows that Jesus took upon himself the karma of a whole humanity, that Ramakrishna took upon himself the karma of hundreds of people? And he looked straight in my eyes. This guy was a Leo with a big Manipura chakra. And he said, show me a single place in any Hindu scripture where it says that somebody has to be so uh, crazy as to take upon themselves the karma of anybody else. Like these people were doing it on their own account because they were psychotic. They thought that they had to save the world. But it's not written in the Hindu scriptures. And I realized with shock that actually in his context he was right. Indeed, Buddhist and Hindu scriptures don't say that. There are some later Buddhist scriptures, Mahayana, and especially Tibetan Vajrayana, where actually this appears, but it is influenced by Jesus. Every time in history where you have something about the fact that karma can be burned instantaneously, this is not before. It's always at least one century after Jesus stepped on the face of the earth. So the metaphysicians say, Jesus is the icebreaker. He's the one who brought this on the earth. That you can, you have karma. Okay, somebody can take half of it, and you can make half and half. It's not enough. Try to think, if you have been a multiple killer, you've been a torsionist or something, you know, you killed and tortured 1,200 people in your life. How much karma do you have? If you take half of my karma, it's going to be a great deal, but it's not even close to enough. But Jesus is much bigger than that. Jesus says, even if you kill the thousand people, God, if you manifest the right aspiration, if you manifest the right attitude, prayer, surrender, God can simply say, okay, it's gone. Now, like this, just because I said it, boom, it's gone. Like Jesus himself does it and he speaks to a paralyzed person and he says, son or brother or man, your sins are thy forgiven. Like all of them, your sins are forgiven. Now, today, this second, pump, just because I said so. This is such a huge statement and therefore it shows what we are talking about. So Jesus brought a lot of new things. Jesus, because people say, what was so new? Many of what Jesus said had been said before. Yes, but Jesus, for example, brought the thing that karma can be shared and burned. Instantaneously even. Not burning by doing trataka on your Ajna Chakra uh, two hours every day for the next two years. Just in a fraction of a second. Like this. It can go out. And the list could continue. For example, the ancient Jews were afraid of God because they saw God through Manipura mostly. And through Manipura, God always seemed just vengeful, terrible, frightening. And you always had to have a healthy fear of God because if you made God jealous or angry or pissed off in any way, then the wrath of God could be something terrible, almost endless. And there was a fear. You should not pronounce the hidden names of God. 
because maybe you hit it right and the end of the world is coming. You should not mispronounce the name of God because God might feel insulted and punish you instead of blessing you. And then Jesus is coming and he says it's nonsense. People, don't be afraid of God. Come close. And on the contrary, call God Abba, Abba. Call God Father, Daddy, not even Father, Daddy, like a, a childish name. No, simply pray to God like God is the most close thing that you have to your heart. Don't be afraid of God. You are smaller compared to God, smaller than an ant is in comparison to an elephant. You are way smaller and still don't have the fear that you will be insignificant and that you will not be heard and that you may be crushed accidentally by God who has got other fish to fry and you are just in the way absurdly and no. Jesus comes from the heart and he says, look at God through the heart chakra as well. When you look at God from the heart chakra, then you are going to see that there is only love, there is only forgiveness, there is only tolerance, there is like 70 times 7, like a ridiculous number, says God is going to forgive you. Forgive everybody because God is going to forgive you. If you are a perfectionist on Manipura, and you say, I have to be really demanding on everybody, you know, you are not good enough, you are not good enough, and so on, then he says, God is going to do the same thing with you, because, just to give you a yogic explanation to understand that, because that's the resonance in your mind. Your mindset is perfectionistic and nagging. And when you die, your mind is going to come up with a belief, now God is going to be very demanding to me, let's see how perfect I am. Of course you are not. Nobody is. And Jesus says, if you don't want to be confronted with a perfectionistic, demanding, judge-like type of consciousness, stop doing it to others as well. Stop doing it to yourself. He says it with the same measure with which you measure onto others, God is measure, going to measure onto you. If, for example, you forgive people a lot, then when you die, God is going to forgive you a lot. It's not even God. Great Tibetan yogis have taken this and they interpreted and they simply said, it's not God, it's your mind. Your mind is condemning you or absolving you because you cannot abs uh, accept absolution because you are perfectionistic and you think that now you've been a real sinner and this was a real bad life you had and you deserve to be a little bit corrected by God. Instead of simply saying, I'm a loving human being, I did my best, I tried to sublime my human frame into as much divinity as I could, and of course I did 90% of the way, maybe, but you know I couldn't go the last 10% of the way. So I really need some grace here. You know, nobody is perfect. If you gave this grace to others, says Jesus, it shall be given to you. So there is a way to get grace by being graceful. If you yourself are graceful, this grace will come to you. So there are so many things which Jesus brought in the world. Like there are so many things which are not being done. Try to think about, let's take another example. Japan in the 15th century, 16th century, Japan was a Buddhist country. It was not 
just Buddhism. It was Mahayana Buddhism, an evolved, a later form of Buddhism, with the Bodhisattva ideal, with great uh, Zen meditators and others. In this Buddhist land, you can say, well, you know, they were kind of vegetarian, they were fish vegetarians, you know, they didn't eat pork and chicken and fowl and uh, beef. They were, however, eating seafood and fish. In this semi-vegetarian thing, where meat-eating was considered an infringement on the precepts of Buddha, of compassion towards the whole world, in this compassionate Buddhist country, nevertheless, people were terribly violent sometimes. For example, if there was a drought, there ensued famine, because Japan was then, as well, an overpopulated country, that could not sustain itself agriculturally, except at the limit. If everybody ate little, modestly, and even then there could be years where there will simply not be food enough for everybody. And in the history of Japan, they had experienced situations where whole villages died of starvation. And there was no food anywhere else in Japan to replenish that. So they had a, they had a custom, Buddhist compassionate, philosophical, not an uncivilized culture, a culture which considered the Westerners barbarians, like they thought they were sophisticated and advanced and so on. In this culture, when there was a famine or a drought, and uh, the council of the village noticed that, then when they took this decision, which was, of course, nobody loved to take this decision, I can give them that, when they took this decision, every family in the village had to put to death one of their children. You couldn't put to death the adults, because the adults were fishing, were washing, working in the rice fields, and so on. They were the ones who were providing for the society. The children were the mealy mouths. They were the mouths to feed, and the ones who were not producing anything. So logically, on Manipura, it was the scientific, sad decision to be taken, you know? That's the only thing which we can see we can do. And if a child was not enough, every family had to call two until there was enough food for the whole village. As soon as Christianity came to Japan, that habit appeared as monstrous. And it is not being done. It was not done in the 18th or 19th century. And it was not desisted. It was not stopped because of Buddhist beliefs. It was stopped because of the interference of Christianity in the Japanese culture. This is why I'm saying that Jesus brought something which even after 15, 16 centuries, it was still tsunamiing. It was still rolling like a wave through the collective mind of the planet. And whoever it touched, it did something. For example, the Tibetans, even in the 19th century, if a child was born with deformities or malformations, it was killed immediately. They couldn't have a malformed child in a harsh mountain climate with people having to walk through mountains and through rarefied atmosphere and all that. And thus, and, but they didn't do it later when they interfered with the Christian civilizations. So many people can say that, ah, the message of Christ is a bit dumb and, well, you know, the church made a big deal of it. And, but actually, if you look at the history of the earth, you can see that it's not only about the Catholic Church doing inquisition and crusades and all that. 
It's also about other things which happened because of Jesus. Jesus was present on the face of this earth for three years and a half. There's nobody in the history of the world who changed the world this much in three years and a half. You can say that Buddha made a a big change which still exists in Asia mostly and in the rest of the world as well. But you forget that Buddha reached enlightenment when he was 35 or so and he lived until the age of 80 or so. So Buddha had 45 years of preaching and organizing the Dharma and writing the canon of the Sangha and everything to reach that. And he did very well. He did an amazing Karma Yoga. He did an amazing job. But it took him 45 years. Jesus was three and a half. Shankaracharya, Adi Shankaracharya in the 7th, 8th century, he came and he reached Samadhi at the age of 16. That was another early one. And he left his body when he was 32. 16 years of activity it took to Adi Shankaracharya. And most people in the world, they don't know who Adi Shankaracharya is. Like his influence was quite local in India, not like Jesus, a planetary influence. Other people have spent years on this earth doing great things. There's nobody who did in three years and a half such a big bang as Jesus. That's why the yogis have seen that and they realize that if this guy was indeed an avatar and in this way he brought something to humanity, that something is invaluable. His message must be studied No, if Jesus talks, God talks. And therefore, one should pay attention because those are not just empty words. If Buddha talks, a very enlightened human being talks. But if Jesus talks, God talks. Makes quite a difference. And that's why, for the yogis, Jesus meant a lot. Of course, I'm not going to tell you, it's already late, I'll be finished in about 10 minutes. I just wanted to share this with you to understand why do we celebrate Christmas and Easter. The yogis, having this theory of avatara, they understood immediately that, wait a second, this spiritual personality of Jesus, his words are holding a special weight. His teaching is holding a special weight. Like, no... Maybe Milarepa said something amazing and we should listen. Maybe Rumi said something amazing and we should listen. Maybe Saint Teresa of Avila said and demonstrated something amazing and we should listen. But all these people are not even coming to the ankle height of Jesus. Jesus is something else. And that's why people say, but Swami isn't... uh, you know, historically inaccurate, isn't his teaching distorted and so on, much less than what you'd think. It is the enemies of Christianity who always come up with these books and movies and documentaries where they say this. If you would bother to study theology, you're going to say that that's not the case. Because first of all, now we have Gnostic texts, texts from the first century of Christianity, which have been like the Nag Hammadi library, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and with the Gospel of Thomas among them, and so on, and others. And that literature 
has never been touched or censored by the by the church, Catholic or Orthodox or whichever, nor by anybody. They are as fresh as history. And when you read the words of Jesus, you read the same. It's the same. It's exactly the same as in the Gospels. People say it was twisted. It was not. It was actually, it is literally the same. And remember, people say that, oh, the Christianity, the Christian thing was, uh, there were councils of the church, or six councils of the church, starting with the first one in Nicaea in the 4th century, under the emperor Constantine and so on. Read theology. Why was there a council of the church? Because in those days there was no telephone, telegraph, internet or anything. There was no printed press. Three and a half centuries had passed since the existence of Christ. His message had been transmitted orally from word of mouth. And even here in Agama, I teach people to do Udiana Banda in one way. And then somebody is telling me, you know, one of your teachers is teaching it in a slightly different way. Like just at a matter of months or years, people are changing a yoga technique. Maybe not in a radically damaging way, but there is still some change. In 300 years of non... And people have papers and videos and everything, you know. In 300 years of non-media existing and no memory, just oral tradition, Peter speaking to the Romans and Andrew speaking to the Thracians and Thomas speaking to the Kerala Indians, then, of course, these things had become wildly different and there were personal interpretations and twists and deviations. And like in any mysticism based on faith, besides the apostles and the right people, you also had on the side of them, I hear that in this island there are about four people who claim to be enlightened and give satsangs and all sorts of things. You know? Imagine what it was in the first century after Jesus. That it was full of crooks, full of hoaxes, full of people mentally disturbed who imagined that they were Napoleon or that they were Jesus number two or some stupid thing like this. And many of them even wrote down texts like, listen, God is talking through me, this and that. And it was just a mentally unstable person who had to have medical care. And, but they had the cheek to write a text like in the name of Jesus, or in the name like, I witness Jesus doing this, or burping, and then farting, and then I don't know what else doing, and so on. These were people who were demented. And in the 4th century, when the church could finally stop running from the Roman Empire, and being crucified and thrown to the lions, then finally they found some time to make order in their house. Because until the half of the 4th century... They had been underground. They had been a mafia, an underground hidden thing. So when they finally came open, they simply said, all the people that are recognized, admitted as enlightened, the saints, come to Constantinopolis or come to Nicaea, to a small city called Nicaea, and will sit together for two months and will try to sift through all this pile of crap and see which is the original stuff and which has been added fraudulently afterwards. In the end of the uh, revelation of John, it is written like a curse. He says, may he who cuts or adds a single word from this revelation, may he be wiped out from the book of life and be thrown in the outer darkness. You know, like the worst thing to do 
is adulterate the truth. When at least three great saints of Christianity, but it said that more, I don't have the theological knowledge of this, but I've been quoted at least three great saints, Saint Basil the Great, Saint Gregory the Theologian, and another saint whose name I forgot, like three of the fourth century saints, personally, physically participated to the Council of Nicaea. These people were fanatics. These were the people who were ready to be crucified for just believing in Jesus. These were the hardcores. These people, if they felt for a second that I'm going to modify the text of Jesus' sayings just so that people can give us more money, these people believed that if they do this, they would go to hell for all eternity. So these people were extremely cautious of not losing their soul in the process. And therefore, even if there has been historically some evaluation, please understand, this evaluation was done by very responsible and God-fearing people, and there was a lot of crap existing. So this is another lie told by people who hate Jesus and his message, that you can't really believe in anything is recorded as sent by Jesus because the church fiddled with it. But when you look at the Gospel of Thomas, when you look at other Gospels, Mary Magdalene's and others from the Gnostic texts, you find out that the common things are the same. There is a common denominator in all these texts and things. And actually, and sometimes there can be some funny wild text. And then probably you would assume that that's one of the funny texts, which is apocryphal. It is written by some crazy person. It's written by some person with rich imagination. And if it would have been subjected to Basil the Great and to Gregory in the Council of Nicaea, they would have put it aside. And they said, this one doesn't inspire any confidence. It does not look like this is written by Paul or by Peter or by... It's, it, it doesn't have the right resonance. It, the words don't carry the message. This is not Jesus. It's some crazy person, some adulterated person who wrote this. This is the whole modification of the history which was done. And you cannot really condemn these people for doing it. So it was not, you are told like it was a conspiracy to hide the truth. No, these were fanatical, fundamentalistic, early Christian saints who were trying to make order in their house because it was a mess. And therefore... Try to think. We think that there existed Christian saints. These Christian saints were crazy. Like Thomas of, uh, I'm sorry, Francis of Assisi. He just went to the people and he said, you are a fake Christian. You are living a fake life. You are an imposter. He went to the Pope directly and he spoke boldly. You know, like this is my truth and I can die for it. Francis of Assisi went to Jalaluddin or whoever, to the Muslim sultan of his time. And he said, if you think that your God is right, then choose a person who wants to... Let's, let's test, let's see if God... Maybe you are right, maybe I'm right, maybe you are both right, maybe you are both wrong. Maybe I'm right and you are wrong, maybe you are right and I'm wrong. Let's see it now. Let's put it to a test practically now. He said, let's make a big fire in the middle of this hall, and I, with a person of your choice, will pray to our God... And we'll enter into the fire. We'll walk into the fire. Let's just see what's going to happen. The sultan 
went blank in his face. Like this was a challenge directly, directly on faith, you know, like practical faith here and now. And he he said, I don't think there is anybody in my camp that wishes to do this test with you. And Francis of Assisi said, then you know what? Then make the fire anyway, and I will alone walk in the fire. But it was obvious that if you would do that and if you would succeed, then like everybody was a fool. They should all convert to Christianity instantaneously because like God has given them a slap in the face right there. No? And the Sultan refused even that. And he said, Francis, you did he said, if I convert to this and a few people around me, then all the other Muslims around us, they're going to kill us. You will not gain anything. It's, this thing has gone too far for you, a single person, to stop it. Even if you walk in fire, this will not be it. So he told him, you did not gain a convert today, but you gained a friend and an admirer. And then Jalaluddin, or whatever his name was, he opened all the churches in the Holy Land and so on, because he had been touched by Francis. Do you have any doubt that if a man like Francis of Assisi, I can tell you about others, St. Teresa of Avila, and us, who are completely fearless. They have been beaten, tortured, mocked, everything. And they went through it with their head up completely. Do you think that if any of, and they were endowed with clairvoyance, God performed miracles through them. Do you think for a second that if any of these people would have said, I actually closed my eyes, and I saw that Jesus does not exist. It's a Mickey Mouse figment of imagination invented by 12 stupid fishermen from Galilee. Or, I closed my eyes, I was in communion with Jesus, and I saw him getting a blowjob from Mary Magdalene. So I guess the Bible doesn't really tell us everything about what was happening. Do you think that Francis or Teresa or others like that would have had any second of hesitation of speaking out their truth? Because Francis was not kissing the ass of the Catholic Church. He actually revolutionized it. So if he would have seen or felt or had a vision of any inconsistency, he would have immediately spoken up. But guess what? There have been saints for 2,000 years. Some of them with an immaculate reputation. And none of them said... Oh yeah, in Nicaea and in the... They made a big shit, they falsified. At least 25% of the truth is not there. No, they didn't. Which means it hasn't been so. Which means it's all propaganda for just undermining and weakening people's faith in Jesus. You know, it's stupid when you know about what Brahmacharya is. And you know that Jesus didn't have an education in Tantra because there is absolutely no trace of it in that century and in that place to say, oh, maybe Jesus was doing Tantra with Mary Magdalene. In those times, in that religion, the only way to do Brahmacharya was by, by celibacy. It is ridiculous that a Christian should see the Da Vinci Code and say, oh, yeah, yeah maybe actually the guy was boning Mary Magdalene, because we are all human beings and Jesus was one of us. It's, it's stupid that a Christian says that. And Swami Shivananda, who is not a Christian, says Jesus led most perfect. He was the manifestation of Satya and Ahimsa 
and the most pure Brahmacharya. A Hindu tells you that and people are losing their faith because they read a stupid book or because they see a Hollywood movie and you never ask yourself who are the producers of this and why do they do it, you know? Hollywood is making a movie about George W. Bush that he was innocent and a good guy and you shouldn't hate him so much. You know, it's Oliver Stone himself who did it, you know? And Hollywood makes a movie about... uh, Queen Elizabeth II, of how torn she was when a poor Diana was tragically killed in an accident, you know, when people say it's the MI6 who did it, actually. You know, it's propaganda. Hollywood can do any propaganda it wants, you know, but it's funny that people are falling for it so easily. So the same with this, don't lose your heart and your connection with Jesus, even if you are yogis, just because you are listening to distorted messages about this, you know. Some people say, how can the Jews believe in... But there is a whole organization in Israel which is called Jews for Jesus. Jewish people who love Jesus and believe in Jesus. And they say Jesus is the most famous Jew, because half, at least, he was, because his mom was Jewish. He's the most famous Jew that ever walked the face of the earth, you know. This is a man to be proud about. And if some of our ancestors hated him... It doesn't mean that now we cannot see the truth, the beauty, the divinity in all this. When Shivananda can see it, when Yogananda can see it, you know, people who are not from there, when Ramakrishna can feel it and experience it. So, I could tell you so many things, but now the time is up. And that's why the essence of it, our meditations on, on the Easter day, they are called the meditations on the Christ-like sphere of consciousness. This is a name which was given by Yogananda. Yogananda says, Jesus, this Christ consciousness, is like a cosmic power. It's like a sphere of consciousness. Because everything in the universe is like the sun. Or it's like a globe of something. Things jam together. They, They converge together. And everything is shining from a focus. This Christ consciousness... This, this special divine consciousness, which is a consciousness on Sahasrara and on Anahata. It's a mixture of Anahata and Sahasrara. In the world it's Anahata and in the meditation, in the prayer, it's Sahasrara. It's the direct contact. This Christ-like sphere of consciousness, is, is, he visualized it like a sphere, you know, like an endless cosmic sphere, like the sun, like a sort of a sun of Christ-like consciousness. Of course, it's not a visible sun. It's an invisible sun. But exactly as the sun is shining with heat and light and ultraviolet and x-rays and everything, this invisible sun of Christ, wherever it would be placed, all around us, maybe, it just shines with this Christ-like energy. So the first thing, it's, it's Yogananda who called it the Christ-like sphere of energy. And what did he mean by Christ-like? Christ is a Greek word which means anointed. Anointed like with oil. And in the Jewish times, the anointment was something which was done for the priests, like priests were anointed and kings were anointed. It is until today. The tradition is preserved. So why is Jesus called by a second name? He was as a child and as a young man, he was Jesus. He's Jesus, 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 Jesus. And then after he gets crucified and resurrected, suddenly people say, you are the Christ. The Christ is a title. He says, Jesus, you've become a king. 
Jesus, you've become a priest. He was not a Jewish priest, so he had never been anointed as a priest. And many people thought that he was a king because he was from the seed of David, from the DNA line lineage of David. His mom was in that DNA. And people rightly thought, if this guy is a Messiah and if this guy is God, we should keep him as much as possible in this physical body, like Buddha. He should stay around for 40 years and fix Israel. We should make him king, not Herod, who is kissing the ass of the Romans, but Jesus, who is the divine person. He should be king for 30, 40 years, and then everything is going to be amazing. And Jesus was even accused that he wants to make himself king of the Jews, because when he entered in Jerusalem, people put leaves in and flowers in branches of different, I forgot the name of the plant which was used, exactly as the entrance which was given to King David. Exactly as to the ancient kings, he was greeted by the simple people from the street, like, let this man be the king. And of course, neither the local Jewish king Herod, nor the Romans were happy about this. So, what I'm trying to say here is, Jesus became anointed. What, what is this anointment? Jesus himself says it clearly. After he came back from the resurrection, there are very few words recorded of Jesus. About, probably... Uh, I don't know, a thousand words or less from what Jesus said. Less, much less, probably 200 words or so. And one of the words which Jesus says is the following. He says, now, which means now that I have been crucified and resurrected, now that I have gone through this ordeal, now that I have passed my spiritual test, now that I have proved my faith, my worth, my real nature, now... All power, all power in earth, on earth and in heaven, on earth and in heaven, all power has been given to me. Like, now God, who can give all power on earth? Only God the Father. So he said, because now I have proven myself, I have been promoted. I am not Jesus. I am Jesus the anointed one. God has anointed me as high priest and as king. Not of Israel, of the world, of this planet. Therefore, Jesus himself, and then he modifies. He was not very open to the non-Jewish people, except on the example that there is this Samaritan woman who really does good, and then there is this Roman centurion, who has a lot of faith, and he gives him as example. And he's not afraid to go under the roof of the sinners, tax collectors, hookers, and everything. He's very open-minded and, and, you know, open in this way. But when he comes out, he suddenly his message is not only for the Jews. It became planetary. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations of the world, which means the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Suddenly it became universal. He, he popped up, a, he got an idea while he was on the cross, apparently. There was a mutation in his mind, because when he comes out of the tomb, he says, now that I've gone through this, all power has been given to me, and according to this all power, I'm empowering you and telling you, go and make disciples of all the nations of the world. Teach them the teachings which I gave to you. Do this and do that. And I shall be with you 
till the end of time, till the end of days. This is the Christ-like sphere of consciousness. Yogananda explains it beautifully. What, what makes it Christ-like? There have been other enlightened beings, but other enlightened beings, they could not sacrifice themselves as much as Jesus. Yes, there is compassion. Yes, I want to help that person that has a cancer. Yes, I would like to be, but to be crucified? It's like, it's a bit much. <clears throat> no, nobody had done it before. <clears throat> there has been some martyrdom before, but it was quick and painless usually. Has not been really that much. Not religious. There has been martyrdom for the gladiators of Spartacus. They have been crucified along the Via Appia. In, but that, that was not for a religious cause, not for God. Those were people in search of a social revolution. And even that is, of course, having its historical value. And therefore, Jesus says, because I fulfilled the mission for which I was born, I have been promoted to be the Christ, the anointed king priest of this world, of this planet. And it's for the whole planet. It's for everybody. And you can invoke me because I'm there with you all the time. You know, I've been given the power. I, it's like a warrant. No, like now he's the sheriff. You know, he got the badge. He's, he's been anointed as such. This is the Christ-like sphere of consciousness. That whoever reaches this level, which the Mahayana Buddhists then, they said this is the Bodhisattva. This is the Bodhisattva vow. That you vow not to even enjoy enlightenment till every soul in this world will ever reach enlightenment. No, like forever and ever, sacrifice yourself, be of use to others. This is, a, the Bodhisattva vow is very, very close to the Christ consciousness. This is what the Bodhisattva vow got five centuries after Jesus. That actually some people may want to go towards the Christ ideal and, uh, you know, sacrifice themselves. If you have been given God early, then please help those who didn't get it yet to also get it even later, even much later, out of compassion, out of sympathy, out of the fact that you know you have reached something good, and why shouldn't the others have your gift? This is the Bodhisattva vow. Don't just selfishly enjoy your enlightenment. Do karma yoga and give it to others. This is the Christ-like consciousness, that the one who is Christ-like understands that we are all one. That God is in everybody, and everybody is one with God, and what you do to others, you do unto yourself. Jesus says, I am every person in this world. He says, I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me to drink, I was sick and you came and tended to me, I was a prisoner in a prison and you visited me for my loneliness. And you are going to ask, when God, like, you know, I would like to catch Jesus hungry and give him some falafel. Because maybe he will bless me afterward. Maybe he will say, oh, may you be saved in this lifetime. Yippee, you know, I did the right investment, you know. I kind of made the good deed with the right guy, you know. It's the best thing. You know? So people are going to say, when? I, like, I wish we did. And Jesus says, I truly tell you that whoever has done it for the least of my brethren, like for anybody, for the last beggar on the street, has done it to me. Like Jesus says, if you tend to the wounds of a man, you tend to my wounds. Because I 
am all and every man. That's the Christ-like consciousness. It's not only the vertical metaphysical thing that I found God. It's the horizontal arm of the cross which says, and this God is embracing all humanity. Everybody in this humanity is just part of the cosmic consciousness. It's all a dance of the cosmic consciousness. Every person who is alive has a divine consciousness, even though they can be stupid or vice-ridden or ignorant, or that doesn't matter. It's still that consciousness, and they just have to polish the diamond. They just have to clean the mirror. That's why they can't see it and they behave aberrantly, and sometimes they do horrendous things. But still, life itself is coming from God, and everybody is therefore empowered. That's the Christ-like consciousness. Therefore, we are venerating Jesus because Jesus has become a Christ and the moment his exam, his final exam, was the crucifixion. He went through the crucifixion in the right way. He came out of it immaculate with God being forced almost, like he twisted the arm of God like, show your hand, now the ball is in your court. No? See, let's see what's going to happen. And the divine consciousness for a long time in centuries in such a visible way, the divine consciousness had to flash forth. It had to come through and say, enough is enough. Pum. That's it. And then, Jesus became the Christ. So we celebrate this exalted Jesus, this reason Jesus, the enlightened Jesus, in which all of us, by realizing the power of spirituality and the, this communion, all of us, are empathic and we are as aspiring towards this Christ-like consciousness. Follow the program of Agama because this year we are celebrating the Easter no less than three times. That's because different branches of the Christian religion celebrate it at two different times. The main branches, the main original branches of Christianity are the Orthodox Eastern Church which is in the Eastern Europe and Russia, Greece and so on. And then there is the Roman Catholic Church, which later has split into Protestant and others, but they all celebrate the Easter according to the same calendar pattern, so therefore at the same time. This Easter, sometimes once every seven years, it falls at the same day, but in six years out of seven, it falls at different dates, sometimes a week difference, sometimes more. This year... The Easter is falling at two different days. There is the Roman Catholic Western Easter celebrated on the 5th of April or thereabout. And then there is the Christian Orthodox Eastern European Easter, which is celebrated seven days later on the next Sunday on the 12th. And then there exists... Uh, I'm going to speak for each one of them. I'm going to tell you a few things at that time, not now. And, and then there is a weird one because there is a tradition in the many folk fairy tales and, st and stories in which it is said that b when it's Easter, the people of Shambhala, because there is a lot of uh, spiritual effervescence happening in the Christian environment, the people of Shambhala pray and meditate a lot. They don't have time to celebrate. Celebration is too little. So they do a lot of spiritual work. And then they still want to celebrate. So they exceptionally do it one week later. So one week after the Christian Orthodox, it's mostly an East European tradition, one week after the Christian Orthodox Easter, 
peasants from the Eastern Europe, they said that they went to pick up water from some mountain creek, and there was nothing uphill from that mount upstream. No, it was just mountain. And in that mountain creek coming up from above, they found eggshells from Easter eggs. So their legend was that the immortals live in the mountains and they broke Eastern eggs and they celebrated a sort of late Easter. So there is this tradition in the metaphysical world that a week after the Orthodox Easter, Shambhala celebrates their Easter because they didn't have time on the actual Easter. And thus, we will celebrate three Easter meditations, the Catholic, the Orthodox, and the Shambhala Easter. On top of these three meditations, please pay attention, because on, before the Orthodox Easter, there is on that Saturday, there is a special meditation which is called the Holy Light. It's because of a miraculous ceremony which happens every year and which is relatively hard to access. It happens in Jerusalem, in the old city, by the tomb of Jesus. There are approximately 10,000 people that manage to attend it physically every year. Actually, most of them, like about 5,000 of them, I guess, they can actually see it because it's an infernal crowd, a terrible crowd. And this holy light thing is that light comes from heaven and lights a fire. And it sounds unbelievable because most of you say, if that would be the truth, then it would be on television and on the Discovery Channel. I will leave you the pleasure to find out why it is not on Discovery Channel and if it really happens. And that is happening at Jerusalem time between 12 and 2 o'clock on the Saturday before Easter. And it's the people who know this. There are like hundreds of thousands of people who try to get in that place. And today it's regulated by the state of Israel with special permits, wearing serial numbers. And it's almost impossible to get one of those permits to get yourself in there. And it's guarded by the Israeli army because the old city is prone to uh, violence uh, of other kinds and so on. And it's, um, I've managed to see this ceremony personally, not once, but I was blessed to see it twice. And uh, there are some videos made by some fortunate video crews who actually filmed approximately what's happening. Just to get you in the mood for this, we're going to play some 15 or 30 minutes from those videos, which we have here in Agama, so you can see, according to your own understanding, what's happening there. So, exceptionally, on the Orthodox Easter, we have an additional meditation, which is Saturday at 5 p.m. Thai time, which is 12 o'clock Jerusalem time, Five hours time zone difference. So these are our meditations for Christmas. And the three Sunday meditations, they are all of them meditating on the Christ-like sphere of consciousness. These meditations are done with the support of music. Because for many people it's very difficult. You know, an alternative would be to give you beautiful, colorful icons of Jesus. And each one of you should repeat the name of Jesus in your mind like a mantra. That's the prayer of the heart in a form. And to do Trataka on the icon of Jesus. If you, any one of you feels that you want to do that, instruct yourselves how you can get there and you can do a sort of mantra, yantra meditation for Jesus. But for the rest of the world, here in Agama we do it with music. I have some music specially prepared for it, which is of course works on Anahata and Sahasrara and this is prepared for you to do this. This is the admin, which I said in the end, 
With this, we have finished the satsang. I communicated to you where this story about Jesus in yoga is coming. I could have spoken easily another one hour or two. I feel that I didn't tell you so many things, which are strictly from a yogic perspective, but uh, this should uh, suffice. It should be enough so that it at least challenges you to do your own research, to do your own homework, and to see what is exactly the understanding of yogis and which are the technical correlations and correspondences which exist there. With this, we have finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining this satsang. And, um, of course, I'll see you next week in the satsang, and then after that in the Easter series of meditations.